So today, as Sally beautifully read, we're looking at such an important chapter in the life of Elijah. And since I was really young, this story has been linked in my head with another incredible account of God's healing power. The story goes that early one summer, when I was about a year and a half old, I became really, really ill. The sort of ill that means a GP actually comes to your house and then tells your parents that you need to get straight to hospital. Just for a bit of context, my parents are both Christians and at the time my dad had been recently going along to some special services uh, and he'd witnessed people being healed by God. He found that quite challenging and had, as a result, been studying the book of James and especially his teaching on healing. Anyway, when the district nurse came to our house with the paperwork to take to hospital, she just so happened to be part of the fellowship that had been running the healing services. And as my parents were leaving to go to Musgrove, the nurse turned to my dad and said, you know what the word says. At the hospital, I was laid in a cot and uh, put on a drip. And my parents and my lovely granny took turns to sit with me uh, in a semi-comatose state while I was very poorly. And by this point, I hadn't eaten for many days and was very weak and seriously unwell. And now I'm going to switch to my dad's words because I quizzed him on this just to refresh my memory earlier in the week. And he emailed his version of events. And I'm not going to do an impression of him because my Brummie accent is awful. So I'll just read it in my voice. So here I am, sat beside this cot with my tiny daughter in it. You're not really conscious and your arm's strapped to the side of the cot to stop you pulling the drip out. I'm obviously praying for you, but I'm also struggling with what James said about healing and also what the health visitor said as we left. I'm arguing with myself, but finally I came to the point where I just laid hands on you and I prayed that in the mighty name of Jesus, you would be healed. Immediately, and I mean immediately, not two minutes or five or ten minutes later, immediately you sat up and said those words, which as I type, I can see and hear as clear as anything, although over 40 years ago. My want a biscuit. (laughs) God really is the God of healing. And I woke up hungry. Apparently I sat and happily munched on my biscuit to the general astonishment of the medical team. And the story has passed into Miller family legend, playing its part to instill in me from an early age absolute faith in the God of miracles and always linked in my mind to this incredible story of God and his servant Elijah. So Matt introduced us to Elijah last week as a man who was hungry for God and this week we're going to look at the signs showing how that hunger was lived out in Elijah's life in his words and in his actions first we'll look at Elijah's obedience then his faith and finally his prayerfulness so we rejoin Elijah after he's announced the great drought after God has told him to go east and drink from a brook and be fed by ravens 
and after Elijah has experienced God's word becoming reality, as he has indeed gone east, he's drunk from a brook, and he's been fed by ravens. And now in verse 7, the brook dries up. And I wonder how Elijah felt at this point. He's experienced the miraculous, if slightly bonkers, provision of being fed by a crack team of ravens. And now his water supply is dried up. So does he feel let down by God? Or do doubts creep in about God's ability or his faithfulness? Does Elijah start to rely on his own wits and resources instead of God's? Well, no, because this is Elijah. And the entirety of his life is centred on the Lord, the God of Israel, who he serves. So when the word of the Lord comes to Elijah in verses 8 and 9, telling him to go to Zarephath and in the region of Sidon, off he goes to Zarephath in the region of Sidon. The Lord commands and Elijah obeys. And this obedience to God is the first way we see Elijah's hunger for God show. The wording used by the writer of Kings throughout this passage is quite interesting. And it emphasises Elijah's obedience using a command compliance structure, which sounds quite complicated, but actually really isn't. Listen to this wording from verses 8 to 10, and hear how the command of the Lord is mirrored in the description of Elijah's compliant response. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And the same pattern, the mirroring pattern, can be found in verses 3 to 5, when Elijah goes east at the Lord's command. There's no wrestling. There's no arguing. We're not in Moses' territory or Jonah territory here. The Lord commands and Elijah obeys. Elijah is obedient to the very letter of what the Lord commands. And nowadays, obedience isn't valued particularly highly in our culture. We prize success, wealth, status, innovation, pushing forward, breaking barriers. But as some of us heard in a word shared at the church picnic a few weeks ago, God values obedience above all these things. And anything God values is valuable indeed. But in order to build a spirit of obedience, a foundation of faith needs to be laid first. And Elijah was a man of deep, deep faith in his God. Right back at the start of verse 17, Elijah announces his whole remit for living. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve. God lives, I serve. Pretty much sums Elijah up in four words. He has absolute faith in the reality of God and because of that faith he's committed his whole life to serving God. So let's look at how that faith impacts Elijah and also the widow and her son in Zarephath. The widow's life is one of desperate poverty. She lives in a thriving trade uh, centre deep 
in Baal-worshipping country. And yet, when we meet her, she's gathering sticks for the fire. She'll cook one last meal for herself and her son on before they lay down to die of hunger. We don't know her backstory, but we can see immediately by her poverty that this bustling, commercial, Baal-centred town has injustice thriving as vigorously as its trade. And the drought has already hit her hard. And then, then along comes Elijah saying, oh, but before you eat, feed me first. I can't imagine what my reaction would have been to that, but I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have been printable in a Bible. But something about Elijah and the way he relays God's promise to that the widow's flour and oil will not run out until it rains convinces her. And in the same way that Elijah's actions follow God's commands, the widow's actions follow exactly what Elijah says. And a few things are worth noticing here. First, this is an extraordinary act of faith for both Elijah and for the widow. If the widow was preparing for her death, Elijah must have been aware of her extreme poverty from her appearance. To ask a woman who was near starvation to prioritise his own hunger over her own and that of her son, Elijah must have been fully convinced that this was the word of the Lord, that the Lord's word was truth, that this woman could and should feed him and that her meagre supplies wouldn't run out. And the widow herself shows great faith in the words of Elijah and in his certainty that the Lord would provide. And he does provide. Just like the little porridge pot in one of my favourite ladybird books and just like the loaves and fishes in that isolated spot we heard about a couple of weeks ago, the widow's oil and flour keep on keeping on, never running out. As Jesus says in Matthew 10:41, whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And here we see that the widow's self-sacrificing faith is rewarded. God provides. And secondly, we notice that by his miraculous provision of the flour and the oil, God is displaying his supremacy, his sovereignty. As we've heard, the area the widow lives in, the area God has sent Elijah to, is Sidon, the central stronghold of Baal worship. The false god Baal has, of course, been unable to provide for this widow. She lives in Baal's territory, and yet it is the God of Israel who provides for her needs. God is not bound by geography. He is the God of all, all creation, the only true God. And his superiority is clear. So in the midst of terrible drought, the arrival of Elijah, this faithful man of the sovereign Lord, makes the widow's house a place of uninterrupted provision. And thirdly, we notice that where Elijah goes, where Elijah takes the word of the Lord, life breaks out. This phrase is taken from a quote I read this week, saying, wherever Elijah goes, life breaks out abundantly, since he is the bearer of the word and presence of the life-giving creator. What a job description the bearer of the word and presence of the life-giving creator. 
And yet, as Christians, that's exactly the job description each of us commits to. We're called to take the good news about our Saviour Jesus into the world, to be little Jesuses amongst people who haven't met him yet, and, and amongst each other as well, and to bear the word and presence of God, to carry it, the, life, the, the word and presence of the life-giving creator wherever we go and whatever we do. And when we authentically and committedly do that, just as with Elijah, life breaks out. So when my dad, who is by no means perfect, because none of us are, dug deep into his faith and his knowledge of God and the Bible and in obedience prayed for healing, God heard, and life broke out. Now, obviously God doesn't heal everyone, no matter how faithfully and fervently we pray. But that doesn't mean his, his miraculous healing power shouldn't be celebrated and shouted from the rooftops when he does heal. And he does heal, as Elijah and the widow find out in the next part of the story. Because what happens next is like a sudden needle scratch on a record player, seemingly interrupting the flow of the narrative. When Elijah was hungry, God provided food from the ravens. When the widow was hungry, God provided food from the jars. So far, so good. But suddenly, the widow's boy, who has survived near starvation, is taken so ill that all breath leaves him, and he dies. In verse 18, the widow says to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? And we can see the essential difference between the widow's reaction to God and Elijah's is that the woman apparently thinks, that's it, that's the end of the story. This is something God's done. She just has to suffer it. She just has to live with it. Whereas Elijah is not content to let it rest. Give me your son, he says, and he takes him off upstairs into a room of the house. And here is the ultimate test of God's authority. It's one thing to rescue people from the jaws of death, but can God do anything when death has clamped tight its jaws and swallowed the person up? As Psalm 139 verses 7 to 12 makes clear, even the underworld is not a place from which God can be barred. And with our long view of history, we know that, of course, God prevails over death. Jesus shows that. The giver of life can storm even death's strongest towers and rescue those imprisoned there. But long years before Jesus comes, Elijah already knows this truth, even if the woman doesn't. And so he prays. And this is the final way Elijah's hunger for God shows itself. He prays. Elijah is obedient, he has faith, and he prays. Elijah's obedience is significant to his prayers because, if we properly think about it, I read this this week, I really liked it, anyone with the boldness to ask God to listen to their words and petitions really should do God the courtesy of first listening to and obeying his. And Elijah's faith is significant to his prayers because prayer is inherently an act of faith evoked by confidence in the word of God and by hope that God can and will 
do something in response to our prayers. For Elijah then, prayer is the conduit by which the power of the Lord flows through him and then radiates into the life of widows and children and ultimately Israel. As Dallas Willard says, prayer moves the power upon which all other powers depend. And through prayer, Elijah receives life and food in order to give life and food. Through prayer, life breaks out. And in verses 20 to 21, we read the desperate prayer of a faithful, obedient man. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. And this interaction between Elijah and God reminds us that prayer is a dialogue, a matter of mutual speaking and mutual hearing. And it's interesting because the text almost returns to the command compliance structure that we looked at earlier. But with an astonishing reversal, Elijah cries out to God, let this boy's life return to him. Then the mirroring punchline in verse 22 The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Earlier in the passage, when God says X, Elijah does X. Now, when Elijah says Y, God does Y. The command-compliant pattern is reversed, and the Lord's answer to Elijah's prayer is stated in the same words as Elijah's prayer. Here... God heeds the word of Elijah. Up until this point in the story, we've seen plenty of Elijah listening to God. And now we see God listening to Elijah. And that's the astonishing thing about prayer. We speak, and God, the giver of life, the Lord of all creation, hears us and really listens to us. The same God Elijah cried out to, we can cry out to, and he will listen. So, what can we take home from this story to think about during the week? Elijah was hungry for God, and this hunger showed in his obedience, in his faith, and in his prayerfulness. God is boundary-burstingly powerful Drought can't limit him, death can't keep him away, he's the Lord of life. And he demonstrates his power over life and death in this story and in the resurrection of Jesus. This is our amazing God who raises the dead to life, who cares enough about struggling people to keep jars of flour and oil topped up and who wakes little toddlers in hospital up with a sudden craving for chocolate digestives. Wherever Elijah went, life broke out. Because wherever Elijah went, God was. Elijah's hunger for God lived out in his faith, in his obedience and his prayer, meant that through what he said and did, he bore, he literally carried the word and presence of God, the author of all life amongst the people. What a mission! And it's our mission 
today as well. But how do we actually live by faith, obedience and prayer when we're facing tough situations? What does it look like in action when we're worried about workload or given a troubling diagnosis or worried for a relative or scraping the bottom of our overdraft? Or if we're wondering whether we should approach the homeless person curled up on the pavement? First, our faith tells us that God is bigger than anything we face. He's interested in what we're going through. He's powerful to help us. And even if we may not feel like it at the time, he is present with us through it all, just like he was with Elijah in the middle of Baal territory. Then, obedience calls us to find out what God would have us do by reading and responding to his word, by inviting the wisdom of others, and by being open to discerning and then following God's leading. Even when it goes against our natural instincts or feels uncomfortable, just as Elijah went where he was sent and spoke the words God gave him to speak. And through committed, eager prayer, we take that faith and that obedience and we lay it before God. We bring our lives and our situations before him. And we invite him to be present. We stop trying to do things our own way. And we carry his word and his presence into every part of our lives. So that's the good and the bad. The exciting and the boring. The cheering and the mourning. The out in the open and the squirreled away in the dark. When we carry the word and presence of God into every part of our lives, we can better take his word and his presence into our interactions with others, into our reactions and proactions to the injustices and challenges we see around us, into the way we love and live in the world. We can literally show others Jesus through our own faithful, obedient and prayerful actions. And it's daunting. And it's a responsibility. But also, what a privilege. Because when we share with others who it is we're faithful, obedient and prayerful to, life, the life in all its fullness that only Jesus can bring, life breaks out. Let's pray. Amazing God, incredible God, thank you that you are with us, that you are present, that you were there listening to Elijah as he lay his hands on that boy, and you're here with us this morning. Oh, that blows my mind, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the enormous impact you have on our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we strive to live faithful lives, obedient lives, and prayerful lives. Come, Holy Spirit. We can't do it without you. In Jesus' name. Amen.